Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. It's summertime, and as the song goes, the living is easy. The sun is warm and the air is sweet. Come and join me in the cool of the night with a good book or two. While we're away, instead of the normal nighttime on still waters program, for a couple of weeks we'll be spending a little time together, enjoying some readings. The stern doors are open to the night, coffee pot is still warm, and the biscuit barrel is close by. Make yourself comfortable, and we'll begin. When I first thought about doing readings like this, I had envisaged them as allowing me a little more time to devote to a book that either was close to my heart or was in some way important to the sorts of things that we look at and explore within the podcasts. But I also thought that it might be a way of introducing to you something that I think that you might like to, say, for example, take away with you on your summer holidays. Now, I realise that this year I'm far too late for that, and I'm sorry for it. I had planned to doing this much, much earlier. However, the next couple of weeks might give you some ideas of books that you might like to curl up with as the nights begin to draw in, and perhaps also to think about books that or titles that you either might not have come across before or might not have thought about reading. Both the titles that I have in mind are not on my, or would not normally be on my bookshelf, but I found them enjoyable and interesting, and I think that you might like them too. Unlike the books that I had selected for the summer readings last year, both the books that I have in mind are fairly recently published, and also they couldn't be more different from each other. And tonight's book is one that you've possibly already heard about if you're interested in the canals. And in fact, you know that you've really arrived in the canal world when you're actually mentioned in the Pearson's Canal Companions. And that's exactly the case for Andy Griffey and his series of crime thrillers that are based on the canals. And, and for those of you who are aware of the Pearson's Canal Guides, then you'll recognise that this is actually no mean feat. So that is a, that's, a, that's an accolade for you, Andy. And the book that I'm going to be talking about and reading from tonight is the first in the series that feature Jack Johnson and Nina Wilde and the dog Eddie. And Jack lives aboard the narrowboat Jumping Jack Flash. And it's the 2019 book, Canal Pushers. Dark Waters, Deadly Secrets, and it's published by Orphans Press, and I have the details in the program notes below. 
At the risk of sounding like a breathless publicist or marketing agent, and as also as oxymoronic as it might sound, this is actually a rip-roaring, high-octane roller coaster of an adventure around the canals of West Midlands. If thrillers are your thing, you're going to love it. However, if canals and life aboard a narrow boat, warts and all, is your thing, I think you're also going to love it too. This is a meticulously researched book. Andy clearly knows not just the canals that he writes about, but also what it's like to live aboard a boat. Andy's journalistic training for the BBC absolutely shines through. And that's not just in the quality of his writing, but more of that later on, but also in his eye for detail. Whether that be locking up the Lapworth flight or walking along the towpath down to Wilmcote or the busyness and the colour of Bancroft Basin in Stratford-upon-Avon or just those tiny psychological markers of human behaviour, it's all there. And although I just referred to a minute ago that Andy's been mentioned in the Pearson's Canal Guides, you're actually not going to go far wrong if you just used Andy's books to chart your journeys. Jack and Nina's journey along the Stratford-upon-Avon Canal, I know intimately well. And he's spot on with the detail, even down to the location of the much-prized mooring rings at Wooden Wawen. It acts as a pretty reliable guide in itself. Normally I'd read out sections, but I don't want to because I don't want to give the game or the plot away, particularly that spectacular and nail-biting ending. Although I hope, Andy, you won't mind if I do slip a spoiler in here, because I think it's important. And that is, it's okay, the dog is fine. Nothing horrid happens to him. And I say that because I know about you, but as soon as a dog appears in a film or a book, my brain goes, oh, no, that's something else I'm going to have to worry about. And I end up missing the main plot to just keep checking whether the dog's still there and still fine. So don't worry, the dog's fine. And in fact, if you follow Andy on Twitter, that's at Andy Giffrey, all one word, with capital A, capital G. And Griffey is spelt G-R-I-F-F-E-E. So if you follow Andy, you can see many photographs of the real-life version of Eddie, the Border Terrier there. And he's lovely. However, having said all that, there are a couple of early sections that I think can give you the flavour without giving too much of the plot away. And the first passage relates to the main protagonist, Jack. And apart from a sequence of authorial interpolations relating to the murderer, Jack's the narrator. And Jack's been recently divorced, and partly from necessity and partly from a yearning for adventure and a new kind of life, he hires the narrowboat, the Jumping Jack Flash, with the option of buying it to live on from a boatyard, which actually incidentally is just round the corner from where I'm recording this right now. Well, having taken over Jumping Jack Flash and feeling rather intimidated by the size and enormity of what's ahead of him, Jack decides to give it a go and try to move her for the first time. 
And I'm sure that anyone who's been on board a boat is going to be able to relate to what happens next. I was just about to step across onto the towpath when I noticed that the boat that had been moored behind me had now been moved back onto the pontoons. There was no real reason to move Jumping Jack Flash, but a wine-fueled wish to tinker with my new acquisition was whispering in my ear. And how hard could it be to simply reverse the length of the boat? I walked along the towpath and did the mooring rope at the bow, coiled it and threw it onto the boat. Then I walked back to the stern and realised that I'd forgotten the sequence to start the engine. No problem, the instructions were down in the galley, and I ducked down inside, found them, came back to the hatchway. But as I looked back along the boat's roof, I realised the bow was now drifting outwards and away from the towpath. Damn, maybe I should have started the engine first. I ran back along the towpath, but the bow was now at least two metres from the bank, too far to risk trying to jump back on board. Moreover, the gap was slowly continuing to widen. It wouldn't be long before the boat pivoted ninety degrees and blocked the entire canal. I ran back along the towpath, jumped onto the stern and rushed to the bow where the rope was a mess of coils on the deck. If I could throw the rope onto the towpath, I could then sprint back and pull the bow back in, I thought. My first three attempts ended with the rope sliding back under its own weight into the water. Each time the task became harder as the gap continued to widen and the rope became heavier. I was now blowing hard and feeling pretty stupid as I pulled the wet rope back for the third time. Shit, what should I do? Suddenly I felt the boat shudder and heard the engine growl into life. Surprised, I looked up and saw a figure at the stern raise a hand to me in acknowledgement. The boat moved backwards a short distance, and then the bow began to move back in towards the towpath. I stepped back across the narrowing gap, tied the line to the mooring ring as the engine was turned off. The boat was back in its original position. I strolled as nonchalantly as I could back towards the stern. A slim, black-haired woman was bending to tie the rear mooring rope onto its original mooring ring. She stared coolly at me with big, dark eyes as I approached. She was hard to age, between twenty-five and thirty, perhaps. She wasn't tall, maybe five foot tall, or five foot three, and she was wearing a big, chunky, knit-woolen jumper. A large blue rucksack was on a wooden bench nearby, with a slug-shaped khaki kit-bag on the floor next to it. Ah, thanks very much, I said. I owe you one. She's a bit of a handful for one person. The woman straightened. The knot of her mooring rope looked a lot neater and more secure than mine. Depends on the person's experience, I suppose, she said dryly. And so, in this way, Jack meets the enigmatic, fiercely independent and yet incredibly vulnerable Nina, with whom they will share their adventure. 
the premise of the story, and again, I'm not going to try and give too much away, but there's been a number of drownings reported along the West Midlands Canal system. Officially, they've been recorded as accidents. But the book, however, begins by showing us that this is actually far from the truth. I have to confess that I'm not totally suitable to providing a critical analysis of Andy's writing or the genre of modern crime fiction. This is the first modern crime novel that I've read in ages. My great love for winding down and switching off when it comes to novels are the detective stories of the golden age, the 1920s and 50s. My favourites are Michael Inns and the wonderfully rich writing of E.C.R. Lorac or Francis Vivian, or Cyril Hare, or Austin Freeman, Victor Whitechurch, and many more. Generally, they're ludicrously complicated, and the plots can be ponderously slow, but that's why I really like them. Generally, I have completely, literally lost the plot five pages after the murder or the dastardly, daring burglary. But I don't read them to catch the criminal. I enjoy that slow ride down the winding literary lanes with Innes scholarly Appleby, or Walling's professor in moral philosophy turned detective, or Vivian's brother Ignatius, the Nestorian priest who understands humankind and the world better than anyone, and will go out of his way to help the police to free the innocent, but not to convict the guilty. That's their job, not his. Therefore, the detectives that I'm familiar with tend to be lean, cerebral, with mouths that smile little but with a hint of the twinkle of humour in their eye. And if they have to resort to fisticuffs, they do it at last resort without crumpling their suits. And they conduct their investigations, puffing on a pipe while leaning against a mantelpiece. I did think that I might like some of the recent Scandi-Noir-type novels, but I just couldn't get on with them. And I think the last contemporary crime novel I read were the Colin Dexter Morse novels. I was therefore a little wary when I started The Canal Pushers. Yes, the tone and the style are very different, and the characters might speak differently and follow slightly different social mores, but, but they're just as rich and colourful, and particularly those that have slightly idiosyncratic predilections. But there's also the sense of place. And for me, that's always the most important element for me. And in Canal Pushers, it's so beautifully depicted and captures the joy of slowly travelling through the gold of a late summer on the canals of the West Midlands. But what I think struck me most about this book was the quality of writing. And again, Andy's journalistic training comes to the fore. Here is a writer at the top of their game. The, the writing is lean, it's tight. Andy knows how to make each word count. There's craftsmanship here. This is prose that have been sifted, shorn and weighed, and, and you can see the effort that's gone into it. There's a lot of light in Andy's writings. And, and I'm not meaning physically on the page or, or even literally in the use of the motif of light, but 
His careful crafting of sentences allows a lightness to emerge between the words. And that's needed when the focus of those words relate to violent death. This means that death and violence are treated with seriousness that's needed and are not trivialized, but the way it's presented is not harrowing. It's a difficult line to balance upon, and Andy does it admirably. And the other notable thing I want to say is how well the story fits with the canal and the narrowboat settings. There's nothing contrived or forced about it. One of the things that I was a little nervous about before I started reading was that the canal and the narrowboat thing could be just a bit of a gimmick. Columbo had his old raincoat, Kojak his bald head and lollipop, Morse his jaguar, and Jack Johnson his narrowboat. But it's not like that at all. There's a natural, organic feel about it. Partly, I think, because of the plot, but also from what I get this feeling that there's a real love and interest of the canals and boating by the author. I have to admit that it was the canals and the narrowboats that was the reason that drew me to the book in the first place. And I had a lot of concerns before reading it. And what I'm trying to say is, and I hope, Andy, <laughs> you know what I mean, when actually, to my surprise, I really enjoyed it. And although I did feel really wrung out by the end and I had to lie down. But again, that's the skill of your storytelling. It is a really good story, one in which you can immerse yourself, lose yourself, as let the world pass by as the tradition of all good storytelling should be. Jack and Nina and Eddie continue their adventurous lives together in Andy's later waterways-based books, River Rats and the Oxford Blues, which was published this year. And just before I finish with another short reading from The Canal Pushers, just one little point for readers and listeners who've not been on a rat narrowboat. I just want to reassure you that not all narrowboat toilets and bathrooms are as cramped or as small as Jumping Jack Flashes seems to be. We've got pretty big toilet here and certainly it's not at all cramped. We meet Jack and Nina again just as they are beginning to set off. Within an hour we were setting off. My authority was further eroded as Nina calmly called orders from the tiller, where she had started the engine without any obvious fuss, whilst I scrambled along the towpath to release the rope. I threw it onto the boat and followed her instructions to push out the bow before clambering back on board. She skilfully pulled her stern rope free of the towpath, pulled it in, coiled it neatly, and eased the boat forward toward the ridiculously narrow-looking entrance of a metal aqueduct that led away from the boatyard's large turning area. Temporarily redundant, I took a moment to register that I was also casting off from my previous life into a whole new, unknown future. Perhaps Nina caught my mood as she flashed me a rare smile, and then, 
furrowed her brow in concentration as she made small adjustments to the tiller and throttle to line the boat up with the metal trough that spanned the A road. In a minute, my new home was gliding about twenty feet above the roofs of lorries and cars that were beginning the commuter's rush hour on the road below. Already I felt the busy, everyday world slipping away from me. A curious mixture of emotions was taking hold, an eagerness for the adventure that lay ahead and the new chapter I was about to begin, coupled with a peaceful sense of separation from all the unhappiness of the past. And that is where the adventures of Nina and Jack begin. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a night of happy reading and relaxation. Good night.